Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and today we have a special guest, Michael Reese. Hello, everybody. So, Michael, you are, you've recently become a new panelist here with us on Elixir Mix, and I'm super happy to have you here. And, but we thought this would be a good opportunity for people to get to know you, your background, and just really what you've been doing with Elixir, because you have done a lot of interesting things, and you bring a perspective that I feel is valuable for uh, the, this podcast and the community. So first of all, I'd love to just kind of hear about how you came to Elixir and what your journey was like. Yeah, I'm super excited to, to be a panelist. I've been listening for a while and, um, and I just, I mean, I consume a lot of Elixir podcasts. So I'm really excited to have a chance to ask questions live rather than just yelling on Twitter after listening to a, a podcast episode. So very excited um, and, and just excited to talk about Elixir things in general. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Uh, so... I think my Elixir journey started, let's see, this would have been 2010. Um, and it started actually with Erlang. Um, I was working at the time at a advertising online advertising agency company and, um, they had a PHP backend. And one of my projects early on there was around scaling. They had major, major scaling issues. And years later, there's lots of reasons I can see for them having scaling issues. But at the time, the biggest one that caused a lot of pain was um, database. Uh, database access was happening all over the place. There was a lot of N plus one kind of query problems. Um, and also just kind of every time a click would come in that we had to record something and then redirect it on to some other place there were multiple queries that happened about, oh, what kind of campaign is this? And does it have an A-B test and, and all sorts of that stuff. Um, and so at the time, I remember we would hit, uh, from my memory, it was like a couple, like a few thousand requests per second and things would start to get pretty hairy. And we had, you know, we had multiple servers and, and all that stuff running in production. Um, but I just had this feeling like, man, th there's not, that much information that needs to be decided on here, right? Like I could easily hold all of the current campaigns in memory and then not need to go ask the database. And if I didn't have 32 different servers all asking the database constantly about what campaigns are around or where to redirect people, this, this would all be a lot faster. So I had this kind of break in work. I spent a couple of weeks building an Erlang version of this same application um, but it would just basically, whenever new campaigns or things were changed, it would kind of push that out to all the nodes and all the nodes would just kind of keep the current campaigns in memory. Um, and my, my, my laptop could do 
10x the throughput of our production 32 server setup. Um, <laughs> and so that. that really sold me early on in my career as an engineer. Uh, it sold me on this idea of like, hey, a little bit of statefulness can, can buy you a lot of mileage in certain circumstances. Um, and statefulness can also be a really difficult thing to manage. But, um, but when you're up against the wall on scalability, sometimes choosing just the right small piece of state um, can really give you a lot of flexibility or a lot of, uh, a lot of choices as an engineer, I should say. So I'm guessing you know, Erlang is, is a little bit more fringe in terms of what people are comfortable with. I know like I was turned off by the syntax originally and, you know, just you know, like not even knowing enough about it to know that I, I really should look at this. Like this is the beam is an incredible thing, but it's just kind of like, Oh, superficially, I don't like the way that looks. So, so I'm guessing that when you showed this to the, your coworkers at the time who were doing PHP, what was that like that reception? Uh, so I, I think I was so naive at the time that I literally didn't think anyone would bat an eye at it. Um, and so, uh, luckily it didn't even get that far. So I ended up going and presenting it to my CTO at the time. Um, and, uh, and I really hadn't thought through anything like how would we deploy this? What sort of, um, you know, what sort of community support is there? I just hadn't really asked any of those questions. I just was so fascinated by this new tool. Um, and so when I presented to CTO, they were like, oh, this is really amazing stuff. You know, pat on the back. They're very nice about it, but they're like, we're actually kind of tuning down that part of our business. We're not emphasizing ad clicks anymore. We're kind of moving in new directions, but please continue to bring this kind of innovative thinking to new projects, which, which I think was just a really nice way of saying no. Um, and uh, and I, I think I showed it to one or two other people on the team and they maybe gave me a little bit more candid feedback on, hey, if, maybe if you're gonna bring a whole new idea to an existing team of people, find a way to, to mix it in with a little less risk or, um, or to introduce it slowly and other things. So, um, so I maybe started to learn some of those lessons at that point. Um, but then it was really, you know, years later, I, I heard a little bit about Elixir. I was in the Ruby and Rails community at this point. Um, and so this is like 2014, 2015, and uh, started to hear about Elixir. And somewhat similar to you, you know, I don't think the syntax of Erlang ever was a turnoff for me. Um, but, uh, but the tools coming from the Rails community where, where there was like really standardized ways of doing tests, um, there's really common patterns for build tools um, and managing dependencies. And so that part of the early community at the time, I remember it didn't feel as polished. Um, and, and that made me a little bit hesitant to, to recommend it for the teams I was working on at the time. Um, so then as I started to hear about Elixir, got really excited. Uh, Dave Thomas's books um, and Jose Valim's presentations at a couple of Ruby conferences were pretty influential for me. Um, and then I just started playing with it in side projects. So um, I very quickly loved the, the familiarity of concepts from the things I'd learned in Erlang. I, I mean, I've always, from the first time I learned Erlang, loved the idea of processes, share nothing. Um, and I really actually love, you know, a lot of people complain about things like the term application being overused. I'm not gonna argue that it's overused. But, um, but I just, I really, really appreciate the fact that there is this um, community embraced way of organizing 
your application. If it does need to have stateful um, supervised processes as a part of that application, there's a way to do that. And it's not like everyone's rolling their own way to do that and you need to require this thing and then call these things in a certain sequence. Um, you know, that, that kind of stuff in, in Ruby and in PHP were painful to me as someone trying to put together um, reliable or resilient systems. That is really cool. Um, so I, I am curious though, you've, if you just have any advice, I, I imagine there's a number of people in our audience who are maybe like the, this, the position I found myself in when I first started learning Elixir was like, wow, this is so cool. I'm listening to podcasts. I'm experimenting. I'm, I'm watching conference talks. You know, I'm the early adopter in the organization. And so I'm starting to try and bring it into the organization. Like, Hey, we're currently doing Ruby. Look at what this can do. And you do have that struggle of how do I manage, you know, uh, you know, expectations, you know, cause I, what we have hired people like, and people will quit because like, Oh, you changed technologies. I don't want to do that technology. I want to be a Rubyist or I want to be a react front end guy. You know, it's like that is, they've kind of chosen this career niche they want to be specialized in. And so when you bring in something like that, it can be threatening. So I was just wondering if you have any thoughts or advice for people out there, like um, how to bring in something new that, you know, to kind of mitigate that risk that you were talking about. Um, just any thoughts you have on that? Sure. I, I don't know if anyone should take advice from me on this. Um, I, I maybe I fall definitely more into yeah. into your camp, right? As as someone who, let's just say, I have a a, a long history of falling in love with new tools, and um, and I haven't always been the most responsible about how I decide to use those tools. Sometimes my enthusiasm gets the better of me, and I just I just want to like go learn, and I just want to go do so. Um, so consequently, I haven't had a, a, an enormous amount of success um, selling Elixir into existing organizations. I also don't, I'm not someone who tends to jump around between jobs very much. So I just don't have a whole lot of experience in this area. Um, but I think uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the things that I have seen work um, are finding ways to mix it in in kind of non-critical systems. So, um, so it's... On the one hand, when you want to introduce a new technology, a lot of times you want to pick the use case that is the best possible selling point for that technology. And a lot of times that's like the one pain that you've been dealing with in your team for months or years. Um, and the difficult thing about that is everyone who cares about this product will care about the fact that you're introducing a change maybe in a very critical spot of the whole system, right? Or they might have sensitivity that they've built up over the months and years around like, oh man, every time we change this thing, something goes wrong. And maybe that's exactly what you're trying to fix, but you have to account for the fact that emotionally people, you know, it's like a, it's like having a toothache where just anything that happens around that tooth is going to be a problem, regardless of whether it's a solution or a problem, it's a problem. Um, and so, uh, so I would say, you know, give one piece of advice, which is find something that you know, that fits the use case of the tool, um, but something that's not right in a critical path. Um, so if you can, you know, you can do something like uh, an internal tool, um, maybe something that is a life of a quality of life improvement for your team. Maybe it's helping out with CI related things or something like that. I think that can be something that lets your team kind of see the new thing. It's not right in a sensitivity area for them. And, um, 
and they get a chance to kind of like, if they've done a small contribution to it, uh, that's one of the biggest hurdles in my experience is just people who don't even try it at all are the first ones to throw a stone. And so uh, if you can find anything that is likely to need a couple of small contributions over the next few months, where you can ask someone else like, hey, would you want to pair with me to do this one small contribution? Or um, is there any chance that um, you can put in this thing for me? Here's a PR where I did something similar a few months ago. Because um, if they've done even just the bare amount of you know, brew install elixir and mixdeps.get, a lot of times just that much kind of alleviates a lot of the concerns because they can see that this is a tool that is not someone's weekend project. This is a tool with years of hard work that went into it and it has a good developer experience, it has um, you know, real use cases that, that where it will add a lot of value. Nice, I like that. Um, I, like, I like the idea of uh, kind of avoiding where there's already sensitivity. It's like I, be, just having the awareness in an organization to realize where, it is, where are people kind of sensitive, what is the, the critical idea and the critical path. So that's cool. So you'd mentioned earlier um, this idea of uh, playing with uh, different kind of uh, experimental projects. And one of them that I know that you did that has actually been adopted and is used in production is like a, around TCP subscriptions and it's an open source library. I'd love you to kind of tell us about that one. Sure. So um, there's, a, there's a message broker out there, an open source one called Nats.io. Um, it's made by a really talented group of people. And um, at, at my last job, um, we were starting to use it as a way to communicate between services. Um, and so it's uh, similar in nature, maybe a little bit similar to something like RabbitMQ. Uh, if you go look around on the internet, you'll find lots of benchmarks comparing the two. Um, but it, it, uh, it emphasizes a different set of engineering trade-offs. So it, it, for instance, never wants to crash. Um, and so if it's ever holding too many messages in memory, it'll just start throwing them out the door rather than crash. And that's a very different trade-off than something like RabbitMQ takes. Um, and it works well though for these kind of ephemeral messages of like, hey, I'm just talking to these other services and I'm just asking a few questions or asking them to get something done and waiting for them to send me a message back. Um, and so in a way, actually, it feels a lot like message passing, passing inside the beam, um, but it's sort of the same concept between applications uh, or let's say between programs. Uh, to avoid OTP confusion, but uh, services, right? Yeah, services. Yeah, that's a good, that's a, a better description there. Um, so uh, we should start to use it. I was looking for a project um, that would emphasize some kind of concurrency primitives. And I was also looking for a chance to get Elixir into a production app at that job. And so I knew that if I was going to do that, I was going to have to support this message broker. And so I started a little project, it's called NAT, G-N-A-T, like the small annoying insect. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not the most friendly name choice in the world. Uh, I'm, I'm not ever going to claim that I'm a great namer of things. Uh, but it, uh, it's been a lot of fun. So um, I actually organized a um, semi-weekly meetup where some friends would get together online every other week and we would build it together. That was the stated goal of our little informal meetup. So it ran for a couple of months and we would kind of say like, oh, I'll try to like tackle parsing the protocol message or I'll try to tackle making the TCP connections. 
and um, and we've kind of tackled different parts of it. It was it was a huge amount of fun. We actually recorded YouTube videos of most of those meetups. Um, if anyone wants to look, uh, oh man, I actually don't remember what these YouTube videos are actually called. Uh, maybe just search my name, Michael Reese, uh, on YouTube, and uh, I'm sure you will find some of these videos. Um, and so it was, it was a lot of fun. And this was one of the areas to me where Elixir and Erlang have always been such a, such an amazing fit. Um, so as, as an example of kind of the pain of trying to do this, um, we were running JRuby in production at this company and, um, the JRuby code that we wrote to interface with Nats, um, has a lot of interesting little things that, that make certain things hard. So, um, you need to keep around some state and memory about what subscriptions have you made and what messages are you expecting to receive so that you know what to do with those messages. Um, but the challenging thing that goes along with that is that if your connection dies, you want to reconnect on some sort of interval. And when you reconnect, you probably want to keep some of that state around. You probably want to resubscribe to certain topics but maybe you also had a temporary subscription where you were just waiting for somebody to send you back a response. And knowing the difference between those two are kind of like having all this state, some of which needs to be kept when you reconnect, some of which should be forgotten when you reconnect. Um, and all of the like managing of threads to make sure that you're not stomping on someone else's data. All of that was painful when we wrote um, a very similar library in, in Ruby. Uh, and we ended up writing it as a Java library and then loading that through JRuby. And um, that also has a few nuances that can be tricky. Um, so I was really, really pleasantly surprised when we started to build this project in Elixir. Basically, the tactic we took was every connection will be a gen server. It will establish a TCP connection to the broker. And then it will keep some state about what subscriptions are there, um, what kind of messages I'm expecting to get back, what, like who do I deliver those back to? In other words, like who subscribed to them. Um, but the amazing thing about that is if that, can, if that gen server crashes, either I get an invalid protocol message um, or you know, maybe I, I missed some data, maybe my implementation has a problem or maybe network problem, lots of things that could go wrong. And in all those cases, what ends up happening is all of that data that was about that connection will die with it. And, uh, and then if you want to keep a long-lived connection, we have these uh, other types of processes that we built into the library called, um, I think we call them supervised consumers. Um, and the idea here is that you say, hey, I'm going to have a named connection or else um, maybe use like a registry or something like that to keep track of one of these connection objects. And, um, and I want you to try to maintain um, some consumers listening and processing messages from that connection. And if the connection dies, it will die and all of its state will be gone when it gets brought back up by a supervisor. Um, then the consumer supervisor will see the process dying and coming uh, coming back up and it will resubscribe to the things it cares about. So in other words, we've created this, this really clean separation between here's all this state about like, oh, I received a partial command from the server and that kind of state should die when the connection dies because I need to get a fresh version of that state when I reconnect. But all of the state about 
what sorts of um, long-term subscriptions do I care about? That now lives in a separate gen server. And these two things communicate and you can use things like monitors so that you get notified as soon as the connection goes down, but you don't have to, um, you don't have to like mingle that state together and worry about ending up in a, in a like, oh, I'm going to just constantly sit here and crash because I forgot to throw away some of my bad state. Um, it really keeps those two things totally separate, which is, which is just amazingly beautiful in the code. So the, the code in the Elixir project ended up being something like an eighth of the amount of lines of code uh, of all the other implementations we ever tried in other languages. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so I really like how you kind of outlined the idea of having, identifying that you have two different types of state, right? Like the state that says, I want to be subscribed for this information. That's like the long lived state. That's the important stuff you want to keep. And then you have the transitive state that, that you want to isolate. So when something does go wrong, that automatically gets cleaned up. I think that's a great way to use that. You'd kind of outline there of using processes in, in the form of gen servers to uh, isolate different types of state and let them crash or recover as is appropriate. So that's awesome. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, and like I said, being able to build it with friends um, just made it that much more fun. Uh, and uh, along the way, we, we wanted to do benchmarks. This was planned to go into a production system. Um, so I actually, I have a gist with a whole bunch of details. Anyone here who loves benchmarks, um, well, first of all, I'm sorry. Uh, but secondly, <laughs> uh, this was, it was a really interesting and fun thing to benchmark because there's, uh, kind of like any sort of messaging or protocol system, there's things like maybe you want multiple connections at once. Um, there are some kind of natural bottlenecks that happen where the protocol that NATS uses is um, just kind of serial in its nature. It's, it's a very simple protocol, but, um, but there's no sort of like channels concept um, or like multiplexing over a single connection. So generally you have to parse the messages in the order that you receive them from the from the server, right? From the broker. And uh, so that there's kind of these natural uh, bottlenecks that you might be concerned about. You might want pooling. And so we benchmarked it under a bunch of different scenarios, but the, but the TLDR was that uh, on a 16 core, just like, please DigitalOcean, give me a machine. Um, on a single server, we could handle uh, 170,000 requests per second. And um, this is not a library that like has super expert people working on it. I think I was the most experienced Elixir person working on it and, uh, and had maybe a year of experience at the time that we were doing this. Um, but even so, uh, you know, being able to get to 170,000 requests a second felt pretty amazing. Like I, I never had worked on, uh, on any sort of library that could handle that level of, of throughput. Um, and a lot of it is just because the, you know, the model, like I said, inside of the beam matches the model of the broker pretty well. And so the beam naturally optimizes things like, oh, you know, I'll, for big binary messages, I won't copy them around, but for small ones, I will copy them. Um, and that way I can do local garbage collection versus shared garbage collection. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. 
you do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. Triplebyte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. That is really impressive. Like that, that kind of throughput, I think that is super cool. And I am impressed just that the idea of saying, hey, let's collaboratively online develop this and just taking that initiative. I think that's awesome. So one of the things you mentioned in there, I just wanted to kind of point out for people in case they're not as familiar with this concept was the process. You said you can add a monitor to something and be notified when it goes down. So I just wanted to kind of really identify for people that there is a thing and I the link to the documentations in the show notes, but it's process. Process is the module. So it's process.monitor. And that's a function where you can say, Hey, here's this process or this name of this process or this reference, you know, here is this thing I want you to monitor. And you're asking the beam to say, Hey, keep an eye on this other thing and tell me when it dies or closes or goes down. You know, like it, it could close normally, it could close abnormally. Just tell me when it goes away. And then it will send you the subscribing process, a message saying, Oh, that thing that you wanted to know about, it went down. Here's the reference for what your request, here's the information. And it's like, that is a, a great way of just saying, Hey, I want to be notified when this consumer that is, you know, is doing higher, higher risk work and it's this processor, it could totally crash. And I want to just be notified and take special action. And it's like, that's just built into the beam. Like that is one of the primitives that's available. And I just want to make sure people are aware of it because I love it. I've used it, but it's like, it's one of those OTP things. It's like, man, that is so cool. And, and just like the idea that this thing, this feature works across nodes, right? I can subscribe to a process on a different node and be notified when that other thing goes down. It's like, that is incredible. Yeah. Um, actually, I, I also want to point out for, uh, I, I know that the podcast has kind of a wide range of listeners of, of people varying um, levels of experience. I'm, I am actually a big believer that you don't need to dive into all the details of OTP and process monitors and everything else when you're first learning. And so, so if you are first learning and all of this sounds like black magic, that's, I think that's totally fine. It can be black magic and, um, and you can still do a lot of very productive and valuable work for people um, while not knowing all of those details. Um, but also if you are someone who in the past you have ever worked with a lot of threads in a language um, where you were kind of down in the guts of, you know, maybe something like a web server or something like a, a database library where you were kind of managing connections and managing multiple threads. If you've ever felt that pain, I would really, really highly recommend that you, um, that you look into some of these tools that Elixir has because even, even though I had known about them for a while and had kind of already found this love for Erlang and for Elixir, um, it, I, I still, there's a lot of things there that I didn't know about. So a couple of like really um, cool things maybe for people to look at. If you go look at the Postgrex project, that's the Elixir Postgres adapter. Um, it has a lot of really cool patterns in there that you can, you can look at um, the issues and pull requests on that. Uh, on that GitHub repo 
have a lot of really good discussions about these topics where people have said, oh, um, you know, I remember I once opened an issue there because I had a, a system that ran in production for a long time and uh, my connection might die without me realizing that it was dead. And um, for almost all use cases, this wouldn't have ever happened. Um, but sometimes a TCP connection can go down and your Linux kernel doesn't know that it's down until you try to access it. And I had a use case where I was just sitting and listening because I was kind of doing uh, like a Postgres notify uh, and subscribe thing. Um, I'm just realizing that like all my stories are around subscriptions and brokering of messages, which maybe I have a personal problem here. So, uh, but in any case, it, it was like this one use case. It was kind of on a fringe. I opened an issue about it and I got really amazing feedback from, from people in that project with a lot of experience um, and, and found it really easy to try to put together a PR to address that. Um, so highly, highly recommend looking at Postgres if you are interested in these kinds of topics. Um, you'll find lots of, lots of amazing tools that are kind of at your fingertips. They're just in the standard library waiting for you to find them a home. So um, yeah, I think that's uh, when you do dive into the guts of OTP, it's, it's like an, it's really an amazing set of tools going along with process monitor. So we, we just talked about process monitor. There's another really amazing tool um, that I've seen people make really good use of. So we talked about this case where like this, the consumer or this like long-term subscription, it wants to keep some state around and it wants to monitor the connection for when it's available and when it's not so that it can do things like resubscribe. Um, there's other cases where like being aware of something else being up and down is a lot of complexity in your code and you may not want something to care about it. You may just want to say like, hey, try to first start up the connection. And once the connection is up, then try to start up a few workers that will use that connection. And if the connection ever goes down, just, just kill all the workers. And um, that's a common pattern that exists in lots of kinds of applications. So you can imagine, for instance, if you had like a data pipeline where you're ingesting some stuff and then you're processing it downstream, those downstream things, you may not want them to be aware of the up and down state of the connection, just kind of like, just blow us all away whenever there's not a connection because we can't get any useful work done. And supervisors can totally do that for you. So um, supervisors, if you have done a mix Phoenix new, you've probably seen your application.ex file. You've seen some concept of uh, supervisors being used. And again, if you just follow the defaults, you'll get a lot of mileage up without ever needing to know more. But once you do want to know more, or if you have a use case that looks like this, sort of like start this thing up and then start some other things. There's a strategy in supervisors called one for rest, which means start up the thing that's um, like the top level dependency first and then start the rest of them in order, like the order that I define them in my supervision list. And if something higher than me ever crashes, then, um, then kill all the ones that were dependent on that and then restart them in the correct order again. And if you've ever tried to do that with threads, oh man, I'm so sorry for the, for the sleep that you lost because I've tried to write tests for those kinds of things. It's so hard to test those kinds of things. Um, it's really, really hard to, um, like you can write unit tests, um, but like watching for whether a thread has started or stopped in a, in a language like Ruby can, can just be really, really hard because um, 
threads don't have names or addresses or, or any other way to kind of like find them. Anyway, um, I, I don't mean to like shed all of my past pain on this podcast, but um, I just am trying to point out if you find yourself in these kinds of use cases, there are some really amazing tools. So um, if specifically if you do find yourself in that kind of a use case where you kind of have like this thing depends on that thing and then there's something that depends on that and you don't want to worry about who's up and who's down, um, the docs and the Elixir docs around supervisors um, are, is really useful. Um, and and it, uh, the vocabulary gets a little bit violent. You'll see lots of documentation about brutal kill and things like that. Um, <laughs> just try to ignore that. It's, it's all actually very friendly and collaborative. <laughs> we are a very welcoming community. We do not brutal kill anybody in our community other than uh, computer processes. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so I'm going to make sure to drop a, a note to uh, the, 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 doc, the documentation you're talking about. It's like the um, uh, supervisor strategies. Um, just one small clarification. Uh, the strategy you were talking about there is called rest for one. And oh. no worries. I just want to make someone out there is going to say, it's this. It's like, yeah, we, we all mistake something sometimes. But yeah. yes, I, I love those strategies. And like, I, I, the way I like to think of the rest for one, like you, you kind of nailed it there. I think of it as like an assembly line. Like you're talking about data processing pipeline, that kind of thing. Like if I have an assembly line of workers and I have like someone towards the end of that line, you know, I just hire somebody and I say, Hey, you pay attention. You just, you work on this stuff that comes from the person right in front of you. Right. That's the state that they have to know is who do I get my work, like my widgets and who do I get my stuff from? And, and then if I, and then that's, that's really all you want them to to, to know about. So like if, if there's like someone further up the chain in that assembly line, if they die, I don't want to have to figure out how to tell everyone else to follow somebody else now. Right? Like that's like trying to have to fix something rather than just roll out a whole new assembly line. It's like, all right, we're just going to fire everybody from where the problem happened and down, hire a bunch of new people. And you just, you just have to be told this is where you get your work from. And like this re recovers that way. And it's like, it's built in like a supervision strategy like that for that purpose. So, and that works really well with like gen stage. That's a, that's an interesting, um, actually, I think I heard you once give a presentation uh, kind of along these lines, kind of, if you anthropomorphize your, um, all your OTP processes, it actually, there's a lot of kind of natural intuition that comes from treating your gen servers and your OTP processes like they were people. Um, and, uh, and I think that's an interesting one. I wonder if we could actually use that when there's corruption in corporations, if we could just follow a strategy, <laughs> a rest for one strategy, maybe that'd be a great way to, to clear those things out. Although um, definitely there's more human costs to letting people go than there are compute costs for, uh, you know, stopping processes in a beam. So um, not advocating for this policy, just yeah. interested in it. And it seems like a lot of times the corruption is at the top of the chain. It's like that, just be like wiping out whole divisions. All right, hire all new engineering, all new support, everyone. Yep, that'd be a little messy, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and again, I just think it's amazing that the tools here actually let you do both. Like in, in my case, I, I had one, one use case where it's like, well, if the connection comes and goes, I actually really want this thing to, to keep its state alive. I do want to repair the chain of command. So I'm going to use process monitor, right? I'm going to drop one layer kind of lower 
in abstraction. Instead of using a supervisor that does the work for me, I'm going to monitor it myself. Um, and that means I have to like, you know, maybe I'll receive different kinds of messages and I might receive them in different order. And I'll have to think about that. But, um, but if I didn't want to think about it, I had alternates that were sitting there that I could have used. Um, and, and maybe one day I will build a version of the net library that, uh, that kind of lets you do both. Um, but in the meantime, uh, you know, as much fun as message brokers are, uh, I've also been having a lot of fun recently in NERVS and kind of robotics sort of area, just any sort of physical computing. Um, and, and I don't know very much, uh, Mark, what is your sort of background in, in that area? Uh, it's primarily just interest. I think it's a fascinating kind of thing. I, when I first started learning about nerves, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing. I want to play with this. And I'm seeing demos where like there's a quadcopter that's flying with a firmware that's, that's keeping it up in the air. And they do a live firmware swap, you know, a firmware upgrade while it's flying and it stays up. And I was like, man, this is the coolest thing ever. And, but I'm afraid to say uh, it's, it's just remained a, a very big interest, but I haven't actually played with it. But that's not the case with you. So I'm glad because you can talk to us about it. Um, yeah, I mean, again, actually, when I started to get interested, in, I, uh, I once again found a group of friends that were also kind of interested or, or had some desire to do some nerve stuff. Um, and so this meetup is actually still going on right now. Let me drop a, I'll share a link here. Um, but if you go to Twitter slash nerves meetup, um, we have a group, it's open to anybody who is interested and, um, we get together about once a month. We do it online cause, um, I have young kids and once my kids are asleep, um, it's hard for me to get out of the house or, or a lot of times I just don't want to miss dinner and stuff with the kids. So, um, we get together kind of later in the evening, like 8 PM, um, and, uh, 8 PM mountain time. And, uh, we just do it on like Google Hangouts. And it, but it's a chance for all of us to get together and share what sorts of nerves things we've been learning or playing with. Um, we also have a bunch of those recorded and available on YouTube. Um, and, and it's been really fun. So I, I've never shipped production uh, products um, with nerves. Uh, that's something I hope to do at some point in my career. Um, but, but so far, haven't haven't been in a company that needed to do that quite yet. Um, so. I've built um, a good number of devices, uh, a lot of them around my house. So um, as an example, the first project that kind of meetup group took on was we all wanted to build sprinkler controllers. And so all of us had some desire. I don't think any of us actually had a legitimate use case or need to, <laughs> to build our own sprinkler controllers. But um, it turns out that sprinkler controllers are pretty like at the end of the day, what you really have is like seven or like, some number of on-off switches, five or six or seven on-off switches, and all you're doing is choosing when to turn them on and when to turn them off. So uh, at the end of the day, the project is fairly simple, um, but everyone kind of had different things they wanted to do. So one of the people in the group really wanted to like monitor the weather and skip watering when they didn't need to water. That was um, something that mattered for them. Uh, I had an HOA rule where people on odd numbered addresses only got to water on certain days uh, and people on even number addresses on other days. And my just like whatever John Deere uh, water sprinkler had been put in decades before I moved into the house made that tricky to do. 
And every time the power went out, I had to go like reprogramming all the rules, which was kind of a nightmare. Um, plus just the fact that I want to over-engineer everything in my life uh, combined to like, okay, yeah, let's, let's do sprinkler controllers. And so um, we all got some Raspberry Pis and just started playing around. And over the course of a couple of months, all of us, you know, I think we ended up, five of us have sprink, uh, nerves controlled sprinklers now. And, um, and that was just like awesome, fun learning experiences along the way there. Things like, um, if you haven't needed to do this recently, you may not remember the fact that if you don't bother to configure, configure any sort of time syncing, then the default for uh, a lot of really small Linux kernels is just assume that when they turn on, it's January 1st, 1970. <laughs> and all of, my, uh, all of my scheduling code was wrong. And so you got to remember to like set your time and uh, you know, check your time every so often, things like that. So um, super fun projects to do. Uh, I, really, I really think that Nerves is um, going to make a big splash in, the, in, in that industry, right? Like it's going to be uh, a widely adopted industry tool um, in a similar way to how Phoenix is already um, you know, heavily adopted across a lot of different companies and doing a lot of different kinds of products. I think Nerves is going to be that, um, and Nerves already is that to some degree. But um, but I think we're still seeing a lot of new companies starting to get into that space, and that's uh, I think will drive a lot of usage of Nerves. I think um, Mark, have, we've had, uh, and sorry, I'm saying like we've. I'm a brand new panelist, so uh, <laughs> so I think you guys have had some Nerves people like Justin Schneck and Frank Hunlathon in the past, right? Yes, in some of our very early episodes, we had both of them on, and I think it is time to have one or both, or you know, have have them come back and kind of give us an up to date of what's going on, and also uh, just just because I people aren't probably going to go back and listen to those old older episodes. So yeah, I think I think that we need to do that. Awesome, yeah, I think that'd be super fun. Um, if uh, if anyone is ever at an Elixir conference and Frank Hunleth is at the conference, I, I will also put in a plug for just find a chance to go say hi to Frank and try to see if you can ever spot him not smiling. I've never done it so far. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it has happened in the history of the world so far that Frank was not smiling, but uh, he is one of the most cheerful and fun people to talk to. So um, big... Uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend that. If anyone managed to catch Frank not smiling in a picture, please tweet it at me. I would like to see evidence of this having occurred. I don't know if you're like me, but when I have a new idea, I probably spend an hour looking for a domain that communicates the right thing to the right people so that they know what I'm about. And that's why I picked up as a sponsor the .tech domains, and you should definitely check them out. There's never been a domain that's helped represent the tech community so well. And getting a domain that's relevant to your brand that helps encapsulate the ethos of what you're doing is just, it's hard. And the .coms a lot of times are taken up. And so having a .tech is really, really awesome. Now, I have actually picked up devchat.tech. Um, we have a lot of SEO behind devchat.tv, so it probably won't switch, but I wanted that out there so that people can pick it up and know that dev chat is about tech. And, and I just, I love the idea. So using a .tech domain was an awesome solution for us. It's short, it's relevant to what we do, and it just sticks in people's head. 
it's a natural fit for anything technology. So if you're a programmer, if you're working on a tech startup or an open source library or things like that, it's definitely a great way to go. In fact, a lot of other companies have actually been moving over to .tech. So CES, which is a conference that I go to every year, and uh, go check out all the new technology. They switched over to ces.tech from cesweb.org. Uh, Viacom has viacom.tech to host their tech division. Intel chose insight.tech for their latest initiative. And startups on a tech domain have raised more than a billion dollars on a .tech domain. So if you want your own .tech domain, go to go.tech slash elixir and use the coupon code elixir.tech and get a one-year tech domain at $9.99 and a five-year .tech domain at $49.99. Now, if you use this coupon code to get a .tech domain, tweet at me at cmaxw and let me know what .tech domain you got so that I can shout it out on Twitter. Uh, I'd really love to see what you're doing with this and I think it's just a great product. So go check it out at go.tech slash elixir and get this deal today. That is so funny because I did meet him at the ElixirConf uh, uh, 2018. And I, you know, I didn't recognize him. I didn't know him by, by just looking at him. I, I sit down at a table like, Hey, how are you guys who are, you know, introducing everybody. And it's like, Oh, you're Frank Hunleth. Oh, and you work with nerves. Okay. Yes. And it's like, but yes, I mean, he is the, a super friendly, very smiley person. So I'm wondering if I can possibly coax him to give a frown picture <laughs> so I can send it to you. And then I'm sure he'll like bust up laughing as soon as he does that. But yeah, you'll have to snap it at just the right time. <laughs> yes. No, we'll have to, I, I look forward to talking with more of those, uh, getting more of that perspective, because I think that is a very interesting. And I, I do also agree with you that um, I think there's a huge opportunity for nerves, especially like with the IoT story and where a lot of IoT devices have kind of just like end of life. And they're like, you know, I, my, I buy this device, I hook it into my house and just stops working because they shut down the servers. You know, things like that. And then where they, the firmware cannot be updated, but they can be compromised. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, so there's, there's a legal aspect where people are starting to talk about laws saying you have to be able to provide uh, firmware updates and certain level of service. And nerves is already in a position where it can do that with like the firmware, uh, you know, uh, secure way of, of updating it and kind of with nerves hub of managing a whole device, uh, a, like a, a field of devices, you know, where you have a, a large deployments. So I think it's very interesting. I'm very excited to see what happens there. Yeah. Um, and I'll also just mention for all of our listeners, if, if you are thinking about getting into this, first of all, um, if you're just interested in like a hobby level, you should know that um, you can do uh, mix nerves.new dash dash init gadget. Um, if you look for any of the documentation, you'll find this command. It's not super obscure or anything. And that will kind of out of, out of the box get you to the point where you can easily configure a Wi-Fi connection. Um, it will start up an SSH server so that if you SSH to that device, you'll get to an IEX prompt so that you can just like start, you know, you can do like application dot start whatever or stop whatever. Um, it's you just now have like an IEX terminal on the device, but it's as secure as an SSH server. And um, you can also, it also has now built in just by doing the dash dash init gadget. You have things like over the air updates to that device, which I mean, in, the, in my, in some of my past experience, kind of during college, I had played around a lot with like Atmel boards. They're sort of like a, a predecessor to what became Arduino. And 
getting things like the ability to know what's happening on your device was, I mean, that was like, you had to be a grandmaster of embedded devices to get something like that working. Companies would spend like months and years of man hours making it possible to remote debug devices. And here we kind of like, it's out the box. But on the other hand, if you are very, want to be very conservative in exactly what you ship, if you don't do dash dash init gadget, the default in nerves is actually to give you just like the, the minimal amount of kernel necessary. It, like by default, it doesn't even have the networking stack turned on in Linux. And so um, if you imagine that you ever shipped a product and, uh, and you had started by prototyping with something like Raspbian, you probably have a whole bunch of processes that are starting and running and doing things that you haven't had the time to audit or to like check, are they vulnerable? Do they need updates? Should I turn them off so that they're not listening on open ports, um, right? There's a lot of security concerns that go along with everything that's gonna come with the default Linux distribution. And so um, I think it's a really brilliant move by the NERVS team to say, hey, when, you're, when you wanna go production mode, like you can assemble just the steps you need and by default, everything's off. There's no, there's no male daemon running. There's no um, NTP daemon running. There's like nothing is running except for your one process. And, um, and that's a pretty amazing place to start from, from a security perspective. But as a hobbyist, you have this dash dash neat gadget where we'll, we'll stand up a bunch of the, the standard stuff for you so that you can get up and off the ground. And, and I was really amazed that when this group of us started trying to work on our sprinkler systems, we kind of got together the first week and we said, all right, what, like, what do we want to build? We decided on sprinkler controller and, um, and everyone was kind of like, okay, I have a Raspberry Pi 3, I have a Raspberry Pi A plus or whatever. All of us kind of had different devices and we said, okay, let's, our goal for the next meetup is just to have like, we've booted nerves on our device and, um, and we can like, blink a light or something. But when we all got back together, everyone had gone way further than that because it turned out that all of us got that working in like an hour of tinkering. And, and that's also really amazing, right? That level of developer experience, bringing that to the world of embedded, uh, embedded devices is, is um, just brilliant. So can't say enough amazing things. I'll try to restrain a little bit of my nerves love as a panelist. I'll try not to talk too much. Uh, and not to ask every single guest if they've used nerves, <laughs> but, uh, but I will check their Twitter feed. And if they have been using nerves and talking about it, then I probably will ask them on every single episode. So I, I know we're coming up to the end of our time soon, but I do want to mention that like you have another project called Roombex, which is a nerves oriented project. It can just kind of give people a little bit of an insight as to what this is. I think it's, it's an entertaining idea. Yeah. Um, oh man. So I'm going to try not to give too much background, but I, um, when I first wanted to learn how to program, the thing that got me into programming was robots. Like a lot of people get into programming because they like games or because it's a career. Um, neither one of those things really mattered to me at the time I was learning to program. I just wanted to make robots. So that for me has kind of always been the Holy grail. And I found out a few years ago that, um, uh, so I went to like a, a secondhand store 
and found a Roomba sitting on a shelf and it was broken, but it's only $10. So I bought it. I started playing around with it. Turns out it was just a sensor that was like super dusty. So I cleaned it off and I had a working Roomba. And then I started like, as soon as I had it working, I was like, man, I wish I could like tell this Roomba what to do. Um, instead of just turning it on, like the whole point of Roomba is that you don't have to tell it what to do. And immediately I just wanted to tell it what to do. So again, some personal issues to work through, but, um, but it turns out that a lot of Roombas ship with a serial port that's available either kind of underneath the top cover, or in some cases in some of the older models, it was like a little plastic tab that you could pull off of the side. Um, and so as I started to look into this, it turns out that they basically have what is called a UART connection. Um, this is, uh, it's like a really, uh, if you come from a web backend sort of perspective, this is like having a really, really dumb UDP connection. Um, but basically you just have two wires. One wire is for me to send ones and zeros to you and the other wire is for you to send ones and zeros to me. And um, and it turns out that they have this binary protocol that's built into basically all the Roombas where you can ask it about the state of its sensors. So you can say like, oh, does the bump sensor, is it triggered right now? Or um, Roombas also have these little cliff sensors so they don't drive off your stairs. And you can check whether or not the cliff sensors um, are detecting a drop off, uh, things like that. And um, you can also send in commands so you can say things like do some beeps or turn on these LEDs or turn on your vacuum motor drive the wheels, all these kinds of different commands, but all of them are packed in this really terse binary syntax. Um, and there's a PDF that uh, iRobot put out that describes this protocol, but it's a lot of like, oh, if you send in this exact byte, then I'll send you back a single byte where each one of the bits is a different sensor and whether it's currently on or off. <laughs> and, um, and so I was, primarily a Ruby developer at the time. Um, and, uh, but I had, I remembered hearing something about Erling's binary uh, pattern matching syntax. And so I was like, oh, I wonder if that's binary that come back from Ruma. And then using the binary, I, I know it's not called binary pattern matching, pattern matching, but there's some syntax for actually constructing binary messages. Do you know what that's uh, no, called? No, not, not for constructing, I'm not sure. Um, anyway, it's in, if you've ever seen in the documentation, you do like arrow, arrow, or, or like less than, less than, mm -hmm. and you can kind of just construct, you can just add bits and bytes to this binary as you go. Um, and it's also really easy to concatenate things onto them. So, um, so this library just kind of says like, oh, I'll make a method like, um, to like read the sensors and you pass in a list of atoms for which sensors you want to read. And then I'll, I'll construct the binary message, send it to the Roomba, wait for a response to come back and kind of parse out all the responses. And I'll give you back a map of like which sensors are on and off. And so um, I built it out of necessity. I later gave a presentation at a conference uh, just about how playing around with robots is a great way to find the joy and fun in programming again. If, you, if you're ever at a point of kind of burnout, at least for me personally, I really just am like, okay, I'm going to make room in my life for some robots. And that's a great way for me to kill the burnout, to, to push that existential dread to the side for a little while and just program just for the pure joy of it. And Roombex was a perfect example of like taking this thing that maybe would have been a frustrating or painful part of the process and made it totally fun. Um, so it's a really simple library. 
Um, and later on, we ended up using it uh, as a recruiting tool. So we would like run these little events uh, where uh, we would go to a university and we brought a couple of Roombas and we had these devices that were hosting a little Phoenix app and running Roombas. And so people could write in whatever language they wanted to and just connect and send JSON packets to and from to control the Roomba. And we'd set up these mazes with PVC pipes. Um, and it is really, truly amazing to see how excited and how deflated a nerd can be <laughs> by whether or not a Roomba makes it through a maze. Uh, it turns out to be basically as dramatic and amazing as like any movie you've ever watched in your life, just from having sent JSON messages to a robot and, and maybe you made it through a maze. So, um, I see anyway. a, a Netflix documentary there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does this Roomba bring you joy? Welcome it into your heart. Um, yeah. So super fun. Uh, if you are into binary pattern matching or, or you need to do any binary sort of protocol stuff, maybe worth looking at that um, library to see some basic examples. Um, and yeah, also I would just highly recommend if uh, it, Roomba also sell, or iRobot, the company that makes Roombas, they sell experimental kits. So you can buy a kit um, where it's not a secondhand store Roomba, it's an actual fully working Roomba, um, but it just has some of the vacuum guts ripped out of it. And it's like 200 bucks and you have a robot that's up and working so you don't have to solder stuff, you don't have mm -hmm. to, you don't have to worry about like speed controllers and batteries and all like you just kind of have a working robot with a bunch of sensors and motors and you can start playing with it. That's cool. I did not know they kind of ventured into that area too. That's awesome. So uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, like, you know, um, you mentioned that you host this nerves meetup online. I've mentioned before that I have the U Utah Elixir meetup that we host as a monthly meeting. Um, there's something else that you've been doing that I thought was very interesting. I think people, I had not seen it done before. So I just wanted to mention this because I think other people who are thinking, well, how can I be involved with uh, kind of bringing people together and doing activities like this? And the one that you've started that I'm aware of is called a Hackaway, where you rent a house uh, here in Utah. It's like up in the canyon. So it's like this beautiful uh, environment, you know, uh, trees and everything. So you, you, rent, you, you gather a whole bunch of people who are all committing to say, yeah, I want to come to this event and it's like a, like a two or three day, you'll have to tell us about this, but it's like a hack away where people can just come up to this location and just hack on stuff. So I'd love to hear about how you, how you run that and kind of how you started doing that. Yeah. Um, so the credit goes to actually, I think the first one I was aware of was organized by a, by a friend of mine named Nelson Whitwer. Um, I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning his name publicly, but, uh, but he actually, um, he and I had talked for a long time about, um, we love going to conferences for certain aspects, right? I love the chance that it gives me to kind of like step away from some of the, hey, I just need to get this feature shipped um, and like out the door. And it gives me a little bit more space just to be contemplative about what I do as a software engineer or what is my team doing or what is my company doing? What's my career like? Um, so I loved that it kind of gave me that space um, I get a lot of kind of social anxiety in big group settings. And so, um, so sometimes conferences are a little bit hard for me. And um, he and I had talked about like, man, really all I want to do is I want to just like go program with other people and have that space to like be experimental 
maybe there's a programming language I've been meaning to learn or technical. Like I'm sure there's probably a lot of our listeners right now who have a copy of uh, Fred Ebert's book um, about property-based testing and they maybe haven't had the time to actually read it yet. Uh, I am someone who very often has one or two technical books sitting on my bookshelf ready to read that I haven't found the time for yet. And I just wanted a place where like, hey, let's, let's set aside some time. Let's go um, learn a language, read a book, whatever we're going to do. Um, but do it with a few other engineers, people that we know, not like a big group, but kind of a smallish group. And, um, and it builds a little bit of a sense of a community and um, gives you kind of that space. But, but without necessarily like there's no sponsors, there's no pressure to prepare anything at all. It's just kind of go and do some programming. Um, so that's that's kind of the core of the idea. My friend Nelson organized one or two of them. Um, he then took on a role at his job that made it hard for him to find the time to organize. So then I kind of took over organizing one just here locally in Utah. And like you said, it, we basically just rent a cabin. We always pick a cabin that's like about an hour from the cities uh, in our area. And that way it's a little bit removed. Like you are kind of like setting aside time for this thing. You, you're bought into it a little bit, but you don't need to like buy plane tickets or anything like that. Um, and uh, we all just split the cost of, the, of renting the cabin for a weekend. And, uh, and we all just go up and code. So usually I buy a bunch of snacks like frozen pizzas and, um, and hot pockets <laughs> and bring a bunch of those up so that we can, when you're in the mood to just crank on code, you can easily snack and not need to break your concentration. But, um, but a lot of people end up going on walks and, and uh, hikes or going out to meals together to have conversations. Um, so for me, it's been a really amazing way just to keep in contact with this group of, you know, 30 to 40 engineers total at any one hack away. Usually there's about 20 to 25 of us there. And, um, and we just get a chance to like catch up on what's been going on. Are you working on a promotion at work? What was that like? Um, what kinds of projects are you guys doing at work? Any cool new tools that have been really beneficial to you? So it's some of that like cross-pollination um, going on. Um, and But also just, you know, it's a way to have nerdy friends and board games also happen at these things. I don't think there's any way to prevent that when you have that many software engineers going to a cabin for a weekend. I don't think it's possible to prevent board games from happening. Um, but yeah, just, just a, a fun way to to make some space for learning. That's awesome. All right. Well, I have, we, I've had a lot of fun in this discussion and we're coming up on our time. So let's go ahead and take a moment and, and we'll go to picks. So I can go first. Okay. This pick I chose is it has actually talked podcast now several times. It's the new live view GitHub repo. It's available online. And I wanted to mention this just because it's like, we talked about it, but you know, I want to make sure people are aware of where it is, how to get it. And if you go to the GitHub page, you can see uh, it has links to like sample projects. I'm including links to those in the show notes. And that's, it's not even on hex PM yet, right? So this is not even an official release of any kind, but we're still using it at work now. We've started like doing experimental uh, work with it just to see how will this solve problems that we have and kind of, we take the tack of um, what is the hardest problem we have 
that we're currently like using soft, you know, like a SPA, a single page application, JavaScript front end kind of thing. What is the worst one that we have? And can it handle that? And so we, we've been like, this is currently doing drag and drop. And it's like, it's, it's very interesting and we're having a lot of fun with it. And so far it's going well. So uh, we'll, we'll have to report back when we have something more definitive and working to show. The other one is xdoc. Uh, they recently released uh, 0.20 and it has a significant new feature. Like the, the previous release, it's like, it, this is considered a minor bump, right? So like the previous one was like 0.19. This is 0.20.x, right? There's like been a couple small releases. But this new xdoc uh, has full text search for, like I can generate the docs from my project, which I find valuable, even though it's not a library. It's like, this is my, app, you know, my application. And I can generate the docs and I can go up and do a, a text search and it will find, do full text search, which was always a big shortcoming with the xdocs that were generated previously. So I just want to make people aware that this is available. Go check it out. It's a, it's a fun one to have. And Michael, do you have something you want to share? Oh man, all I want to do is plus one your picks now. I, uh, <laughs> one quick plug. Um, I've always, I've, there's been a lot of times in my career where I've wanted to like, pull together all the comments from my team's code and actually have like a browsable documentation. <laughs> and it's brilliant. The xdocs totally gives you that. So if you haven't ever done it, I highly recommend on your team or personal project or whatever, just compile the docs and open them locally because it really is amazing how valuable those comments become now that they can kind of get compiled in with the code and, um, and, and xdoc makes them really browsable and searchable. All those things that you maybe ever wanted if you are the same type of nerd that I am. Yes, and what, one of the things that's funny is when, once you actually generate the docs, then you can then you realize how the the comments that you've been writing where you're doing the at doc in your code how it's wrong you know you're 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 formatting it wrong you're doing something wrong it's like oh i can do this and oh that that makes sense and now now it all works and, oh how do i do this i'll go look at the elixir core documentation to see how they're doing the docs for this because i see in their docs how it works oh that's how they do it then then your your code documentation gets better too just by using it yeah yep all right, and I have one, one small pick. I'll mention the package telemetry. This is officially released in on HexPM. Uh, it's still early days, um, but it's, a, it's an initiative to make it possible to have kind of a standard way of instrumenting libraries and frameworks um, and for people to pull out and use that instrumentation for lots of different, like whether you're using Prometheus or StatsD or whatever to collect your metrics. Um, the idea here is just to like separate the, instrumentation from the collection and usage of those metrics. And so I had someone on, on that NAP project we talked about, talked about earlier, they opened a PR where they were like, hey, um, I'm running into some performance issues at work and I'd really love to like have some instrumentation around how long did a publish take and um, how many messages per second am I receiving and things like that. And their initial PR had like a lot of like kind of callback functions. And so you could basically like add a bunch of configuration. And I was like, oh, and I went and I remembered hearing about telemetry and I went and looked and it really is um, extremely simple if you uh, are the maintainer of a library to take the telemetry package and just build it into your project. And so, um, so the telemetry package, I'll, I'll drop a link there. 
And then also I'll just drop a link for uh, the PR where we included it in the NAP project, um, which just turned out to be a lot simpler than I initially thought um, and has, uh, has made the project better, right? Like it's made it more useful to other people because they can get a bunch of stats out of, uh, out of their usage of the library very e easily. And I know that um, Phoenix in an upcoming release is planning to use telemetry um, and it's it's built in such a way to be friendly to both the Erlang and Elixir community so that hopefully um, this will become a standard that uh, everyone from both those communities can use together. And that way in the future, if I'm using a, a well-known Erlang package, I can probably get the same sort of uh, instrumentation out of that library that I get out of Phoenix or something else. So um, just a big plus one and, and a big thank you to everyone who's been working on that project. That is cool. I have not looked at that before and I see so I'm impressed with the installation instructions. They do have, here's the Elixir and here's the rebar Erlang perspective. So I'm glad to see there's a little bit awareness of like, hey, this is for the whole Beam community. And I was noticing that the copyright at the bottom is Chris McCord and Erlang solutions. So that is really cool. I'll have to check that out and, and look into that because I, I do like Prometheus and I would love to see what else I can do with this. All right, well, Michael, it was a pleasure talking with you. Um, I'm glad that you're going to be a, a panelist and a regular uh, contributor here on the podcast and, and adding your insight and questions uh, as we talk with people in the community. Um, if people would like to follow you online or connect with you, where would you direct them to go? Uh, probably the easiest way is Twitter. Um, so I'm MMM Reese or mm Reese uh, and that's and spelled R-I-E-S on the Reese part. Uh, and so um, I don't, I don't, do a whole lot of tweeting, um, but uh, I will generally just tweet every once in a while about, you know, a robot project going on or, or something like that. And um, also the nerves meetup that we talked about previously, um, that's, you know, probably a place where I'm spending a good amount of time. And so um, if you're interested at all in nerves, then you are welcome to jump in there. You're welcome to jump in on the calls, but also we have a Slack um, where we all just kind of hang out and share projects or ask questions. So um, if you're working on something and you want a little bit of help or, or advice on it, that's a good group of people to reach out to as well. Awesome. Yeah. And if you'd like to reach out to me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at BrainLid. And that would be, I'd love to hear from people in the community also like uh, guest recommendations, anything like that. So uh, feel free to reach out. So, well, I guess that's it for today. We hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.